From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. Brian Whitlock, USGA agronomist with the USGA Green Section. Been with the Green Section now 14 years. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who knows more about desert golf than Brian Whitlock. In addition, Brian has led educational and research initiatives at the USGA from the 2018 revision of the specifications for putting green construction to the current research exploring organic matter testing. Before we get to my conversation with Brian, it's the time of the year in the northern climates for low temperature stress and disease. Civitas Turf Defense is ideally suited for late season applications to prepare for the winter ahead. Enhancing stress tolerance is essential for every golf course superintendent. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro combines two compounds with demonstrated ability to activate plant defenses, assist with the control of insects and diseases, and increase stress tolerance. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. Brian, listen, I've been wanting to chat with you for a while. Uh, first off, big kudos on getting Hawaii when Gil Hooley gave it up. That was a slick move that you made right there. Yeah, I worked myself in there as he was still on on board. I said, "Hey, I, you know, I'm the warm season guy. You gotta work me in Hawaii here." And okay. uh, you know, of course, it's all mostly Pasqualum out there. But what you really, I think, there's two ways I know you. One is as this real expert on desert golf, and that's what I want to explore with you today. Now, I'll brag on you that. You were one of the leads on the revision of the specs in 2018. Now you're on this organic matter project. So in addition to the course visits and the education that you do and your expertise in desert golf and getting to go to Hawaii, you, you know, you also do a fair amount of topical research as well. So a man with many talents. But let me start with the simple question from your homeland there. Over the years of visiting that place, the desert Southwest, where overseeding is still really the market that you guys are in, green grass and sunshine, as Rob Collins at Paradise Valley would tell me, right? Let's start out with the seasonality and the challenges that COVID has presented with that. I, there's some of this I want to hear from somebody like you that's been around it a long time. Historically, yeah, you got the Bermuda, but most people are playing on cool season grasses. And boy, you guys have got that dialed in pretty good when it's at its peak. And it used to be, well, you know, the summer people don't get the same golf course because the Bermuda grass struggles for a variety of reasons we'll talk about in a minute. What are you telling people when they're saying, huh, I'm having a hard time giving them what they want in the winter without paying a pretty heavy price into July, especially if I don't get the monsoons in August? So talk me through how more people staying around in the summer, putting pressure on summer play, may be throwing a big wrench in the works out there. Well, yeah, so it used to be the golfer's idea of transition was getting on their private plane and flying back to Canada. That was that was their transition program, and no one really cared about what summer conditions looked like. And there's still a handful of those courses in Palm Springs, really, that close down, and they don't have to worry about summer conditions that much. But over the past decade, I would say the market has definitely changed, and there's a lot more golf in the summer, especially in Arizona, 
in Nevada, and even now in the Coachella Valley to some extent. So that placed a much bigger emphasis on the transition. So the process where we transition out of perennial ryegrass and, and try to recapture the Bermuda grass, it's tough. It's not a fun process for any golf course superintendent in, in the West. It's, right. it's always a difficult process. I will say that superintendents that have been proactive and willing and having an open mind to do some experimenting have made a tremendous amount of progress on that transition uh, process. Is some of that related to the preparation? Is some of it related to seeding rate? Is some of it related to I can get a little bit better at that transition if maybe I don't have so much ryegrass or maybe I don't scalp the Bermuda down too much. I know that prep and seeding rate has changed a lot thinking wise. Is that part and parcel of what's got to change with having to have better summer conditions is the way we prep and seed? My hunch is to say absolutely. Scientifically, I'm afraid I don't know of any data that pinpoints less aggressive preparation practices and improved transition. But intuitively, you got to think that the less aggressive prep has a benefit as far as Bermuda grass recovery the following year. Now, there's plenty of other benefits to lesser prep. There's less green waste. There's less dust in the air. Uh, less wear and tear on the equipment, less wear and tear on your employees. Mm-hmm. And there really hasn't been a decrease in the, the overseed quality. So, you know, there's a lot of courses now that they overseed in the green Bermuda grass without any issues. Now that we're using growth regulators, Turplon Ester and Trinexapac Ethyl to slow down the Bermuda grass, and, and maybe we use some desiccants, Diquad or, or Palm Springs uh, Scythe, is still uh, real popular to kind of knock back the Bermuda grass. But, you know, gosh, we used to scalp down the Bermuda grass to dirt. And now a scalp height of between 325 and 400 is pretty common in closely mown areas and half an inch to five-eighths of an inch and you know, or even three-quarters of an inch in, in roughs. Um, so you got to think that helps with transition. So have chemicals allowed us to deal with the changing climate? I mean, it's no surprise the Bermuda's got to be hanging on a little bit longer. And it's no surprise that the ryegrass is getting sturdier and sturdier over time in certain places, right? You probably visit places where the rye persists, particularly if there's any kind of shade in some of these areas. The rye might persist through the year. So are chemicals and growth, you know, growth regulators, herbicides are primarily what we're using. I mean, they're all growth regulators per se. Are they giving us more control over an otherwise difficult to manage competition between these two grasses getting more complicated with the changing climate? Well, so yeah, in the fall during overseed, some courses will overseed real early in in September Absolutely. The growth regulators, whether it's Trinexabac ethyl or Turfon ester, they play a big role in slowing down the Bermuda grass. But you know, if we get some humidity and the heat persists like mm-hmm. it did in 2020, there's no stop in the Bermuda grass. I don't care how much <laughs> growth regulator you put down, the Bermuda grass is going to compete mm-hmm. with that new ryegrass. And last year was a really tough year for many courses in the West. Yeah. Now, this year, it cooled down in October. And this year, you know, knock on wood, has been a real beautiful overseed year for courses in the West. Cooler nights have naturally slowed the Bermuda grass down, Perfect. and, you know, the ryegrass has germinated nicely. 
and we haven't seen the Pythium pressure that we did last year well, with the extended heat. I'm sure Gabe Towers is disappointed that we're not going to get Pythium. Yeah, exactly. He's not doing his Pythium dance this year. Now, to your point on the climate change, you know, I, I think we're seeing heat later into the year and therefore, I think we can expect Bermuda grass to grow longer in the year. And and to that end, there's a few courses, not not many, but a few courses that are of the mindset we're going to grow one of these new Bermuda grasses, like Tiff Tough Latitude or Tahoma 31, where there's this grass 17-8 uh, from UC Riverside. Mm-hmm. We're going to grow one of these new grasses, and we're not going to overseed. And we're going to use some pigments and maybe some paint to see if we can retain color and growth and recovery as much as possible through the winter months. And uh, while that may not be popular for a lot of courses, like you, you mentioned Rob Collins at the beginning here, and, and he's right, we're selling green grass and sunshine, and we need some grass that not only stays green, but also will recover from traffic, that will recover from divots. So here's my question. How much is the lack of availability and increased price of seed going to influence that decision? Well, that's a great question. So many courses definitely have reduced their seed rates this year, but I can only think of a couple courses, too, off the top of my head that are experimenting with not overseeding fairways. It's been tried in the past, and economically, it's just a bad business decision because the market, you know, people come to play on green grass, and it's tough to beat a striped-up ryegrass golf course in February and in March. You know, that is so pretty. And to go next door and play a non-overseeded golf course that may be green, with Bermuda grass, but and people obviously don't know whether it's Bermuda or ryegrass, but they sure like that pretty striped-up ryegrass. So right now, it's tough to beat that. But that market, if we're going to pay two bucks or, or more uh, a pound for ryegrass, certainly seed rates are going to go down. Overseed acreage is going to go down. Maybe uh, overseeding will go away entirely for some courses. Now, earlier, Frank, you mentioned seed rates. Related to transition, interestingly, I haven't seen seed rates be that closely tied to transition success. In other words, if you oversee a 300 or 350 pounds to the acre or 1,000 pounds to the acre, I think you have the same chance of a bad transition. Because in March, the ryegrass is super healthy and dense, even at 350 pounds per acre. That's right. Yeah, I mean, what I've chatted about with a bunch of guys out there is the higher seed rate just might buy you a week quicker of being able to play. And a week, uh, seven days of golf at 250 rounds a day at whatever it costs to do in February when nobody else is open actually pays for a fair amount of seed. I heard it just the seed yeah. rate might just be it gets there quicker because I'm with you. I, I, I've, studied, I've studied seed rate. Within six months, within three months, you, you, they all thin down to almost the same shoot density, depending on management. The heavier seated ones thin out a little bit, and the lighter seated ones thicken up a little bit. That's it. Exactly. So November, December, the guys that seed at 800 to 1,000 pounds per acre, they're going to be better mm-hmm. than the courses that seed at 350. But by March, it all shakes out. But mowing height could impact that, Brian, right? So when I visit my old Chicago buddy and Northeasterner, Curtis Tyrell, now at Desert Highlands, 
And yeah. I see how he's got to keep the rough a little bit taller out there because that's obviously what the golfers he's servicing want. The higher cut of grass creates problems later in the season because believe it or not, I, I, I had a hard time believing it until I saw it. That Bermuda grass begins to need light almost by mid-February, early March. What do you think? Absolutely. So you hit on the nail on the head. Mowing height is huge. It may be number one hmm. practice as far as encouraging the Bermuda grass to recover from overseeing. You're exactly right. So by mid-February, definitely, the Bermuda grass is starting to wake up. And it's not growing aggressively, no, but it is producing new leaves. Those new leaves need light to produce new, new sugars from photosynthesis. So therefore, we've learned that really we're killing our Bermuda grass from February through May, if we've got a thick ryegrass mm-hmm. or poetrivialis and bentgrass stand on putting greens. Mm-hmm. So we have to do things such as lower heights. I'll give a good example. TPC Scottsdale, Blake uh, Mintmeyer is a good buddy of mine. When he started at TPC Scottsdale in, I think it was in 18, on the fairways, they probably had 20, 25% Bermuda grass in middle of June on their fairways. And the ryegrass was gone. It was bad. <laughs> And Blake, who's maybe listening, I, I hope, would agree. <laughs> and now it works with you. Oh, no, now it works for the tour. Well, so they had the mindset that they were going to just hang on to their ryegrass to capture that $250, $300 a round. Yeah. But they decided, you know what, we need golf year-round. We need a good transition, and we need good Bermuda grass. So they kind of switched their mindset around. And the following year, so one year later, they lowered their heights right after the Waste Management Open, which is basically Super Bowl weekend, right. which is the end of January, first week of, of February. So right after that, they started lowering mowing heights, and they started using some herbicides. In, in this case, like you mentioned earlier, they were using them as growth regulators to slow down the ryegrass. And over time, between heights and using these chemicals, they snuffed out the ryegrass and encouraged the understory Bermuda grass and they went from literally like an F transition to an A minus in huh. one year. Huh. And you've seen the same thing at other places. And I'm wondering when I go out there and I'm not ready to go down the water hole yet. So let's keep our water comments confined to watering in the winter, not because the ryegrass or the poetriv needs it, but because the mat underneath the grass is needed. The Bermuda grass underneath the grass, the rhizomes need water in the winter. Right. You know, we're working on some soil moisture data. I think somewhere in the 30, 35% range is kind of a happy place to be for not only the overseeded turf, but for the understory Bermuda grass as well. And, you know, we've, we've learned that during transition, as things start to heat up in the year, which is kind of April, May timeframe, if you're dry, it really sets the Bermuda grass mm-hmm. back. There's mm-hmm. no question about mm-hmm. it. Not to move forward with water here, but, but <laughs> where we really use the water for overseeding is not necessarily to germinate the seed, but it's during transition. Hmm. That's when we're using all our water, where the Bermuda grass, we're basically in a growing situation yeah. every year. Right. We've got to start this transition much earlier. And if I, if I may, I'll just talk about this. Rob Collins and I are, are working on a study at his place at Paradise Valley where he's got Six different Bermuda grasses. They're replicated three times. Uh, half those parcels are going to be overseeded. And the idea is to kind of conduct a hybrid overseed where we overseed in the fall like normal. 
but we're going to start getting rid of that ryegrass, so to speak, or or, de- or shifting the competitive advantage to the Bermuda grass in February. So hopefully by the end of April, early May, we're managing Bermuda grass. So if we're able to do that, now we're managing Bermuda grass from May through you know early October, rather than managing Bermuda grass from, Oof. let's just say, mid-June. Well, let me say this. In my visits over the last several years down there, Brian, here's how I would characterize it. You get three months of pure cool season grass, three months of pure warm season grass, and six months of some version of those two grasses, you know, battling it out one way or the other. Is that a fair assessment? Because what you're talking about is more like four to five months of Bermuda grass and less rye grass. And my question is, how are the golfers going to like that when you start trying to be more aggressive early? So here's the beauty of this RMS, this ryegrass <laughs> management system, I'm, I'm, I'm calling it, because everyone gets scared about the idea of spraying out. That's taboo. So we got to change the name. But anyway, uh, we can start in February. Another course I'll lean on, Shadow Creek in, in Las Vegas, Greg Neindorf, fantastic golf course superintendent. He starts the ryegrass management system the last week of February. He had an LPGA event, a match play event, the second or third week of May last year. He was 95% Bermuda grass in Las Vegas. It's colder there. Their Bermuda grass season is really short. If you're playing golf at Shadow Creek, you're paying some big money. So he can't compromise course conditioning or aesthetics. Right. If TPC Scottsdale could do it, anyone could do it. Yeah, that, that's a good example, although we probably agreed it might be a fair amount of resources available to him that might not be available to everybody. Yeah, but he's actually using manuscript, which unfortunately isn't labeled in California yet, but he's using manuscript, which is really inexpensive. Anyone could do this. A golf course with a budget of $400,000 could do this. Okay. You just have to start early. And the beauty of this is, so long as your spray applications are on point, the golfers are never going to know that you sprayed it. That's right. And that's got to be the key, right? I mean, people yep. have very high expectations. I say to almost all the guys out there, you know, you've been a victim of your own success. You've done so well over the years. And like you said, nobody really looked at what happened for so many months of the year. And now that they're having to pivot, I really appreciate you making the comment about having to play around a little bit. And I visited the new fella at TPC Scottsdale and they're still playing around. They did some phrase mowing. And I really appreciate the culture of tinkerers uh, that are out there. Not, not, I mean, not everybody's Sean Emerson, you know, building a golf course to cool season grass out there. And that's wizardry course in and of itself. But certainly there's a lot of innovation. Now, one of the things... I am fascinated about that you do out there before we get to water. That's your work around surface prep, right? And and I'm talking primarily about your even bentgrass surfaces out there that you guys condition for tournaments and for the winter or the overseeded surfaces. But I'm thinking about maybe some of the places you got bentgrass and poa. It's a little bit cooler or the overseeded grasses. Do you get away with things in the desert on these putting surfaces you think we can't get away with in other places because bank grass might be really well suited to the desert as a surface and does better in dry conditions and that allows you to get benefits of brushing and things like that? Talk a little bit about bank grass in the desert. 
Absolutely. If you're at the right elevation, now in, in Metro Phoenix, you, you don't want to grow bent grass. But if you're above 2,500 feet, let's say, bent grass grows really, really well. It's a really a beautiful place. Even even Las Vegas, for the most part, it's a good place to grow bent grass. There's a couple courses left in Palm Springs, but not as fun there. <laughs> but those courses that are at the higher elevation in this dry climate, uh, it's really a terrific place to grow uh, bent grass. But the, the challenge is it's growing year-round. In other places in the country, it goes to sleep for four or five months. It goes totally dormant. It's not producing organic matter. So let's say the courses out here, the, the, the challenge is they're producing organic matter 12 months out of the year, and that has to be uh, diluted if you're really with sand if you're going to really produce a premium uh, surface, if you want firm and fast conditioning. Now, I think you and I have talked about this before, but a lot of golfers, they don't necessarily want firm. They want soft and fast. That's really what (laughs) what they want. And we can get away with that. Back to your point, we can get away with some of that in this arid climate, meaning we can get away with some elevated surface organic matter, which may get other courses in a, a more humid environment into trouble with disease, but here the disease pressure is, for the most part, is so low that we can kind of get away with some elevated organic surface or organic matter, which allows those superintendents to still produce great surfaces that are fast, they look pretty, they're smooth, but they're generally on, on the on the softer side, but we found that a lot of golfers like that. They like the ability to <laughs> stop their ball on the green and, and, and pound their chest that their surfaces are fast. <laughs> That's right. And so what about brushing? I've really been fascinated with, uh, you know, maybe you can brush instead of verticut. Maybe I could brush to manage my canopy. Do you see routine brushing for you guys out there as something that most folks should be doing in combination with rolling to maybe get away from grooming and verticutting? What do you think? I'm kind of in the all of the above camp. Um, I like to think of it as light intensity, high frequency. So do something often during the growing season. And brushing, I think, touches the most surface area of any of those practices. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of brushing. And I would think that the courses that have bent grass or Bermuda grass for that matter, those that have done it consistently and have done it well, they've really enjoyed the benefits of routine brushing. But that's not to say you shouldn't groom and verti-groom. I like to say verti-grooming rather than vertical mowing, I mm-hmm, guess, because mm-hmm. I like light intensity. If you're verti-cutting, you know, people think of that as a thatch management practice which means you're going to have to recover from that, which means your blades are probably at an eighth of inch or even a quarter of inch below zero, which generally I think is just too uh, aggressive. And what do courses do? They disrupt the surface and then they put nitrogen down to try to recover from that. And honestly, I think they go backwards. So I'd rather do something at high frequency, brush, groom at light intensity, with the grooming blade set, you know, 60 to 90 thousandths above the bottom of the rollers okay. when run in the, in the reverse uh, rotation. You're just, you're just nipping those blades that are growing horizontally along the, the ground. That's all you're trying to do. If you're vertigrooming, 
your blades are at even with zero down to maybe 60 to 70 thousandths below zero. And, and all you're doing there for Bermuda grass is cutting aerial stolons. For bent grass, you're just getting into the canopy mm-hmm. to, again, nip those blades that are growing along the ground and creating small channels to help incorporate sand top grassing. Right. Um, but the day of those practices, the greens should probably be better than they were before you started. You know, that's the way I like to think of it. So, you know, all those things in conjunction during the growing season can really be beneficial to smoothing the green, getting the greens faster with higher mowing heights, and then obviously incorporating a good sand top dressing. The only time I would do a more aggressive practice is right before your aeration event, which is once, generally for bent grass, it's twice a year in the desert, and on the Bermuda grasses, Typically, it's once a year, but it's kind of a double or even triple type of uh, aeration event. Yeah. There's a few guys that do that. When I go out there and visit them, it's like one day they airify with quads, and then the next day they go out with five-eighths, or three days later with five-eighths, and then one more time a week later, and burying it in sand every time. It's it's like you're rebuilding the root zone every year. I, I have to say, sometimes it seems a little excessive, but I will say... If you don't have good water, I don't think it can drain good enough, especially if you, you know, have the ability to put it on. And since I took us to what we've been avoiding the whole time, Brian, let me, without any further ado, I don't know the best way to ask the question. I mean, I'm aware of the fifth management plan. I'm aware of the industry's work to sort of say, well, a gallon of water in the golf business generates so many billions of dollars in economic impact. And I, you know, I'm aware of the central Arizona project and other uh, sources of water that people might have, you know, like something maybe beyond off Pima road off that development in Scottsdale. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you take all that and you throw it in a blender and you get things that come out in a smoothie that might say, well, I don't care if it costs more. I can, I can afford it. So we're just going to buy more or it comes out in a smoothie and it says, yeah, everybody's cut 25%. Either way it goes, is the industry getting ready for what's about to happen, or do you think it maybe is not going to happen as dramatically as everybody else thinks it's going to? In California, it happened this year, right? I mean, there were there were like the Meadow Club up in Northern California. They they were basically uh, watering teas, greens, and green surrounds, and that's pretty much it. I think their cut bets were forty percent, mm-hmm. um, but it's very regional in in, in California. So there, California, it's a year-by-year basis on whether the water districts decide how much water to cut back. But everyone, whether it's California, Southern Nevada, uh, Arizona, everyone is talking about water, the future of water. And generally, it's water availability and water costs. There's courses in Southern Nevada that are not overseeding anymore. And one course that I, I won't name, but the general manager told me last year that they saved half a million dollars by not overseeding the golf course last year just in water just in water right i mean that's a that's a huge number yeah and as soon as you get out of that business you lower your water amount and then it's really maybe not that hard to keep a golf course with a certain amount of water when you're not overseeding not just saving money but you're not going to use as much water yeah and in phoenix area the savings are one and a half to two acre feet per acre per year so if you've got 50 acres that you're all of a sudden don't overseed, you know, you're looking at 75 to 100 acre feet of water 
annually. I mean, that's a big number. In Vegas, the number is higher because their ET rates are higher. In Palm Springs, the number is higher, again, because the annual ET rates are slightly higher than the Phoenix area. So that's a big number. And while we're not there yet, there are a few courses that are going that route. And, and, and that's why we're interested in you know developing these warm season grasses that'll stay green and grow year-round. Now, we talked to Jim Baird at UC Riverside and his group out there. Unfortunately, we're probably still a decade away from that grass, but at least we're trying now. You know, breeding efforts have always been, let's try to grow Bermuda grass further north in, in the country. But now it's, all right, let's keep Bermuda grass green and growing in, in areas where the ground doesn't freeze. So at least that effort has started, and, and, and we're about three or four years in, into that, I guess, now. But what I hear you saying is this, Brian, there isn't an option to keep overseeding if water gets restricted. That's right. I mean, for Arizona, the new restrictions, you mentioned the fifth management plan, will really be those courses that have 70 to 80 acres, they'll actually be okay. They'll be able to continue overseeding, assuming fifth management plan goes into effect. And I think it's 2025 when that goes into effect. But those courses that have more than 90 acres of of irrigated turf that's overseeded, they're going to have to remove turf or significantly cut back their overseed process. And again, for those courses that have a million bucks a year they're spending on water, they're economically, they're they're, they're motivated to uh, remove areas from overseeding. Now, there's other ways where I'm doing an in-ground soil moisture study where we're trying to get about 20 golf courses to pivot from basing irrigation decisions on ET and pivoting towards using in-ground soil moisture sensors to schedule irrigation. Now, I don't want to get into those details, but I'm excited about this study, and we're coordinating with some guys from Toro, with Spio. Carmen Magro has been fantastic to work with us supplying POGOs, so it's going to be a two- or three-year project. We're kind of just getting started. But I'm, I'm really excited about this project. And the superintendents have been all in, and they've, they've learned a lot already by using the POGO just to map fairways and have made some changes to their irrigation scheduling just based on that information. Yeah, and, and I have to say, it does seem odd that a place with limited water resources doesn't have that widespread culture of using moisture sensors I'm obviously beyond the greens, right? I mean, we're, we're obviously yep. been doing that on greens, but now you're talking about large scale watering. And listen, I'm going to get you out of here in this and ask you for your opinion. I have to say, visiting in the desert, it's one of the more stunning growing environments I've ever visited. And I've gotten to visit north of the Arctic Circle and all the way down to Rio, China, Australia. I've, I've seen a lot of different mm. growing environments. Uh, I find the desert fascinating. The designs, I don't necessarily find that fascinating. Maybe there's not as much you can do. But when you say, well, somebody with 70 acres of overseeded turf is going to be okay, and somebody with 90s got to get rid of some turf or not overseed it, what's a good amount of irrigated golf course land out there? Why do we have, I mean, it seems like, oh, well, you got to rip it out. All right, let's just rip it out, making it the desert. You know, what are we doing? It's, it seems like we either need this to play on it or we don't. We need to water it or we don't. We need to overseed it or we don't. And how much do we just do because we've always done it? Yeah, good question. I So there's courses in Scottsdale, Arizona, that are in the 60 to 65 acre range 
that are very playable. There was one course, and I don't recall the, the name, but there was a Greg Norman golf course that is now uh, Mirabelle, but it was something else before. That was about 60 acres. That was just people People hated it. Because and it wasn't enough ground. The entire golf course out. Yeah. And, <laughs> so to answer your question, I think somewhere around 65 to 75 is probably a pretty good place to be. Now, there's courses in Palm Springs and in Arizona that are 100 to, gosh, there's still a couple courses that are 200 acres, which is, I'm sorry, but it's just ridiculous. <laughs> so, you know, they, they need to get down to, I think 85, 90 is, is, a, is plenty. And I think that 65 to 75 is enough to, you know, have a good golf experience and not spend your day in the desert. That's no fun. People <laughs> want to play on grass and not spend their day looking through the cactus. So you need a happy medium, I guess, 65 to 75, in my opinion, is probably a pretty good place to be. But it's tough to remove, go from 100 acres of turf down to 80 or, or 70. What do you do with all that turf that you've removed? Do you just put rock on it? Do you put native grasses? Do you do desert landscaping and it's expensive typically between 20 and thirty thousand dollars an acre to make that happen that gets expensive real quick so at the end of the day it's a vibrant economy out there and golf's not going anywhere and certainly water's going to be a portion to these courses so is it going to get to the point where it's like okay a big club's going to do it and then they're all going to start to do it or do you think they're going to just get forced into doing it by not having enough water? Well, there were a couple of clubs in Arizona that started not overseeding roughs, you know, and there was kind of a trickle-down effect uh, from that. And now there's a couple of courses that are not going to overseed uh, anything, and they're just going to use pigments and paint to maintain their Bermuda grass. In my opinion, and that's all this is, is my opinion as a golfer, I find that surface a lot of fun to play on. Hmm. Unfortunately, my opinion is in the vast minority. <laughs> Most people, golfers coming from other parts of the country, they totally disagree. But, you know, it's going to take some time for that to change. And um, you're, you're right. It's going to be a couple courses that start with it and show that it can be done and show that they can continue to bring in customers and, and continue with rounds of golf. And as the Bermuda grasses get better and we can upgrade the new Bermuda grasses to provide a better dormant surface. And, and you mentioned Curtis Tyrell earlier, you know, he's looking at uh, zoysia grass mm -hmm. as a potential dormant surface. So maybe it's zoysia grass, who knows? But, you know, we need to keep an open mind. You mentioned tinkering earlier and those courses that are willing to tinker, that are have an open mind, that are willing to challenge the norm, those are ones that are going to change the um, paradigm, I guess, and move us into a golf future that uses less water, which will be a wonderful thing. Brian, you are an absolute treasure uh, for that group of folks out there in the West. It's so great of you to take the time to chat with me. I learned so much listening to you chat about something that you've sort of grown up around and really internalized. Really appreciate you taking the time, Brian. Thanks a lot. Real pleasure. Appreciate you inviting me.
Managing golf in the desert climates and often with poor water quality requires optimized infiltration and drainage just like the rainy Northeast. Wouldn't it be great if there was a machine that increased infiltration by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass? Well, there is. Dry Jack Services. Dryjack Services keeps the water flowing through your profile and plenty of air in the root zone. Dryjack is a flexible and affordable service that can be designed to meet your surface and layering needs. Contact your local Dryjack service representative or visit dryjack.com. Adam Van Dyke. I am the owner and scientist of Professional Turfgrass Solutions in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I work pretty much in the entire Intermountain West and even beyond that. Depending on the issue, I will travel and I will study it. As we head into the fall, in my opinion, the best season for golf, in some areas it gets a bit easier, others are gearing up for the snowbirds. No matter what, playing conditions are still at the forefront and the plant food company has the products to meet your needs. Nutrient solutions that enhance your playing conditions is what the plant food company is all about. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. Let's start out with how the season began. What was it like in the beginning of the year? Because obviously, Adam, the beginning of the year is really important for you guys because it's a short season at the elevation, some elevations. So coming out of the winter into the spring, that transition where, oh, is it dead? Is it alive? How bad? How'd my snow mold work? Right? I mean, I don't think people, a lot of people understand. You guys don't see the earth for long periods of time in certain parts of the region. So let's start there. What was it like coming out of winter? Well, coming out of winter, it depends on elevation. So where I live in the Salt Lake Valley, you know, we're above 4,000 feet, but you go up in the mountains up above 7,000, it's completely different. So we have pretty consistent snow cover up in the mountains for the most part, but in the valleys, uh, recently, I mean, 10 years plus, it's kind of hit or miss. Sometimes we'll have a little bit of snow cover for a few days, but those 90 days of snow cover are kind of behind us. They don't happen anymore. So we have play pretty much all year long in the valleys. But this winter, you know, we had uh, a low snow cover, not as much as we normally have. So, I mean, we definitely did have snow. We had some snow mold pressure, but uh, it's not a lot. It melted off pretty quick. We had a pretty warm January, and then we kind of flipped a switch, and all of a sudden February got really cold. We had a huge storm, and that kind of shocked the plants that were kind of coming out of winter dormancy, and we had some physiological issues early on in late February, early March, where we did have some winter kill. We had some grass that was struggling to emerge from that cold snap, so people were kind of freaking out early on in the spring. And then we just kind of jumped right into summer drought and uh, no rainfall. And now we're here in October, the fall. Again, you know, we had a complete 180. It cooled off. We had nice growing conditions, and we've had a little bit of moisture this year. So it's been kind of up and down this year. So a couple of things. Let me unpack that wonderful answer and start with this. When I hear you say less than 90 days of snow, that's me hearing Huh, you don't really have much gray snow mold pressure in the valley at all anymore, do you? No, we're seeing very little snow mold pressure in the the lower valleys. And even up in the mountains, you know, very little gray snow mold for many years. There's little pockets where we'll get it, but it's been mostly pink snow mold 
as the snow is melting and that canopy is wet and saturated. Okay, and so then it starts to wake up a little bit. And I think, what are we talking about? The bent grass playing surfaces primarily waking up or the poa annua surfaces waking up and then getting stressed? Well, the annual bluegrass wakes up earlier. Mm-hmm. And the bent grass, depending on the cultivar this year, I saw was more sensitive to that super cold weather. So that is what struggled to green up and get growing early this year after we had that cold snap. That was the plant that was causing most people stress. Okay, so thank you for clarifying that, depending on cultivar. Did you find any cultivars that greened up a little better, looked like they were going to be a little bit more competitive in the spring with annual bluegrass? Well, I think some of the newer, more improved ones, we don't have a ton of those around here just because a lot of our courses are older. So we have a lot of Pencross and some of the older varieties. Those ones seem to be a little slower to wake up and we're more sensitive to the cold. And then if anybody had PGRs on them, you know, that slowed it down even more. But given time and some warm soil temperatures, they came out of it. So the annual bluegrass takes a hit out of the gate, right? And that's what's stressing everybody. And was it able to gather itself and at least put down the little bit of roots? Or did it go right to flowering and stay weak heading into the drought? Overall, it handled it okay. There were patches, you know, low areas, maybe where water collects, shady areas. There were definitely some spots that people had winter kill, either due to low low temperature uh, kill or some ice issues, just in small spots of greens. Those checked out, but overall, it just acted pretty normal, flowered. I wouldn't say any earlier than normal. Mm-hmm. It was all really dependent on air temperature and when the soils warmed up. Okay. So now you're saying that was, you know, what used to be abnormally dry has been uniform and being abnormal. And so we're going to call it normal now. And it means it's warmer and drier, which last time I checked, and particularly with the Oregon State folks starting to see, you know, how dry weather in normally good POA areas can really start to wreak havoc, bring on anthracnose and issues like that. So did you see a lot of stress-related disease resonate into the summer from maybe uh, weakened POA from the spring or just general anthracnose stress through the summer? Oh, for sure. And we saw some things that I was unaccustomed to, things like some root diseases that I didn't know much about but have started studying the last couple years. And not necessarily on annual bluegrass, but more just Kentucky bluegrass in general. I saw more summer patch this year on all heights of cut across the golf course than I've ever seen before. Okay, so let's tease this out. Is it because it might have happened and it wasn't obvious or this really happened? We cultured it. Maybe we've had it a long time, but now we've got it diagnosed. What do you think? Has it always been there or is it really fairly new? It's always been here and it's traditionally been a home lawn or park problem where, you know, those surfaces are usually overwatered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know if it was just a perfect storm or I became more used to just looking for the symptoms and just being aware of it. But the spring transition into the drought where we had, you know, not abnormally dry, you know, we're used to warm temperatures and no rainfall. But I think people were trying to cut back on water a little bit, given our state of water in our reservoirs and our drought. Mm -hmm. So I think people were trying to cut back, meaning golf course superintendents. They were cutting back water a little bit. 
especially in areas like driving ranges or nursery areas, and uh, you started to see the summer patch symptoms more just in those stressed root zones. Well, yeah, and and one of the things we've been talking about quite a bit more here in the Northeast, where you know summer patch is endemic now. It's it's here for good, and it's just a matter of you know whether how bad it's going to be or not. And one of the things that concerns us is the length of time that the soil continues to stay warm, and mm-hmm. the longer it stays warm and wet, the more infection can occur, and it becomes a a war of attrition, right? So as the seasons get longer. If the bluegrasses are starting to run out of steam, we're still seeing diagnosed summer patch, Adam, this late in the season here in the Northeast. You know, lest you think this isn't a a problem that's continuing to emerge, what I think's happening is that root system is compromised and it can't cover for the bad irrigation anymore or the reduced Mm -hmm. amount of irrigation, right? Because when you reduce the irrigation, as I understand it from walking around out there, you know, your uniformity is still not so good. Even when you dial back the water, that uniformity gets low. And so sometimes those dry areas show up. And if there's summer patch in there, that's what you see, right? Yeah, for sure. Did see a few more, you know, really bad explosions on certain putting greens on golf courses. Again, I think, you know, just maybe due to putting out a little bit less water, maybe some other changes in cultural practice and, and things, but I didn't see it explode as much as summer patch. And it's always there, again, something we see every year. But again, that was one that the people were dealing with. Mostly basal rot symptoms that can kind of be masked by certain things. But we did see some greens with certain biotypes of POA completely check out this summer. You know, you're young. I'm old. I'm not as old as Tom Cook, but I'm pretty old. I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as old as Koski, but but I'm still pretty old. And as long as I can remember... When I would talk to people who lived where you live, you worried about snow mold and that was it. And now you're making a living looking at not only diseases, but I was so fascinated to see all the insect things you tweeted mm-hmm. out this year. Have you always seen these insects or did they all show up in the last couple of years? Well, take one step back and let me throw another disease at you before we jump into insects. Perfect. Being observant and doing what I do we come across some symptoms that are, again, unfamiliar to me, and we call in the experts. And I actually had a new disease diagnosed this year here in Salt Lake. Uh, it's called thatch collapse that was, I think, discovered in Penn State Lab a few years ago. Yeah. It's yeah. a fairy ring group of fungi. Yeah. And so now we have that new disease. Waitia or brown ring patch was our new one about five years ago, but now we have another one called thatch collapse. So that was newly discovered this summer. Okay. Before we get to insects, let's go back. It used to be nobody sprayed for diseases out there. You sprayed for mm-hmm. snow mold and that was it. And now you're mm-hmm. rattling off the thatch collapse. Uh, John Kaminsky described it, and it's a ligase-producing organism that degrades lignin rapidly. And mm-hmm. so back in the day, I saw it at Harding Park before they redid the greens. That's a fascinating disease. You do not want to get a lot of that around. It's quite interesting. Yeah. It kind of just came on all of a sudden, early June. Yeah. As soon as soils got really warm, and it persisted through August. Yeah. You literally got to go out there with shakers of sand and spray sprinkle it into mm-hmm. where it's sunk so that you have a smooth surface. That's the worst part is it makes it a bumpy surface. Now, let me pivot one more time to Waitia since you brought it up. Thanks for bringing it up. We see it, but boy, 
not yet anyway. I don't see it becoming a lethal problem. We see it. As soon as conditions get good again, the grasses generally grow right out of it. Now, if conditions stay persistent, you can see pitting associated Uh with it. And what we've seen is that we look at it like a rhizoc, even though it's not, right? And we've had a lot of luck with the polymixin product. It's called Endorse, right? Uh, We've had a lot of success with that uh, on the Waitia patch. Mm-hmm. And it generally grows out of it, but when conditions get bad, there are compounds that work. Have you played around with it at all? You just started to see it. Yeah, polyoxin, that's a firm as well, right? Right, a firm. So early on, uh, a firm mixed with banner, so a DMI, that was, it was pretty, pretty easy to prevent and then also clean it up. It's one of those light switch diseases, I like to call, that's mm-hmm. either on or off. Mm-hmm. And we, we might have conditions ideal for it for maybe three or four weeks. So it's pretty simple to clean up. It's more cosmetic. It doesn't cause the pitting or sunken areas like the thatch collapse does. This year, didn't see much of it. So every year is a little bit different. Huh. So let's get to the insects. Did they all show up in one year or have they been there a while but never caused a problem or they've always been there and now they're causing a problem? So like all these things, they've been here long before us, right, Frank? (laughs) So it just took somebody to just make some observations get down on the grass and look around and find them. The Intermountain West is kind of the billbug capital of the country. Huh. Even though they're throughout the United States, you know, we, we kind of have a hotbed. And I think, again, that ties back into the drought. Hmm. We see more of them or the damage from them more just because of the drought stress in the summer. Doesn't mean we have any more than you do back in the Northeast, but they are probably our number one insect pest. And this year in particular, we had, in my trials, the um, highest density of billbug, so the greatest billbug pressure I've ever worked with this year. And billbugs are surface feeders, yes? The adults can nibble on grass, but they don't generally injure any of the turf. It's the larvae that burrow through the stem in the early instars Mm -hmm. that damages the plants and then drop into the soil and eat roots during later stages. Right, okay, so do you see animal activity trying to consume those grubs or are you seeing damage from the actual insect you know nibbling on the shoot and then eating enough roots to compromise it during dry periods damage from the insect that's an interesting thing i've never really thought about you know white grubs here in salt lake we don't have too many of them we have chafers and i've seen raccoons and skunks dig those up on a few select golf courses Mm -hmm but it's not widespread. Billbugs are way more widespread, and maybe there will be some birds that maybe peck at turf, mm-hmm. but it's a lot less disruptive than you know larger organisms like raccoon or skunk. So we don't really see that with billbugs, at least in my trial work. So are you in search of an effective material, or can endophytes help, or you have products and you're just checking their efficacy? Um, I've been studying these since 2010, written a couple papers on it in GCM. I helped develop a Celeprin. That's been probably the go-to product for billbugs because it's systemic. It's in the plant. Mm-hmm. If you get it down when the eggs are being laid, it's been very effective. Um, there's some other things that work that I've, I've worked on as well. I see it mostly in annual bluegrass and Kentucky bluegrass. Endophytes probably play a role. But I think just the insects kind of hone in on different species. So things like ryegrass and fescues, they don't really go to those to lay eggs. It's more the bluegrasses. So in your neck of the woods, 
Insecticide applications for these organisms, a celeprint application is typically warranted in, in your region for most golf course superintendents? If your pressures are high enough, yes. Uh, economic thresholds are going to be different for every course. Right. I have some courses I work with that just have huge problems that didn't spray in the past, and now they have to just to kind of keep the injury in check. And again, that, you know, depending on the expectations, you know, a country club probably needs to spray more so than a municipal course. They can kind of tolerate a little bit more damage. Yeah. So it just depends. Can we spend two more minutes on another insect that's been around, you know, long before we inhabited southern Utah, desert southwest, as urbanization has expanded and we are building more and more and more, we're, we're displacing what was a traditional crop pest. It's a flea beetle known to exist in all the lower 48 states, but it has, for some reason... 10, 20 years ago, switched to a turf grass host. So we, with the help of Dr. Ben McGraw, someone who was smarter and more talented than me, he was able to identify a brand new species of insects affecting turf grass plants down in the, the desert southwest. What are we talking about here? Are we talking about leaf blighting, modeling? What, what kind of damage are we talking about? Is it lethal or just nuisance? We have yet to figure that out exactly. It is a very, very small flea beetle that we believe, based on our data, migrates in from somewhere, we don't know where, to the golf course in the summer. It loves perennial ryegrass, but it will also attack other hosts, Kentucky bluegrass, annual bluegrass, Bermuda grass. The adults will strip the leaf tissue, and then the larvae in the soil, we don't know how much damage those are doing to the roots, and we have multiple generations, at least two that we know of, based on our monitoring. And the stages exist at the same time, so it's kind of hard to tell what is doing the most damage, but eventually the turf just completely collapses and just goes yellow. Have you found any populations yet that are worthy of an insecticide application? I have been doing trials for three years, and we are slowly finding things that do have some efficacy and protect the grass. We still don't know a lot about where it comes from or where it goes to overwinter. It comes in, causes damage, and then leaves. That's all we know. Mm -hmm. And I suspect, based on the historical insecticide use of neonicotinoids, pyrethroids, and organophosphates, as well as carbamates, those have been heavily used for 10, 15 years. And in my trials, I'm seeing no effect from some neonicotinoids and pyrethroids. So I suspect we have some resistant populations already to those classes of chemicals. Oh, boy. Okay. All right, listen, Adam, let me get you out of here on this question. I mean, I'm not going to ask you about setting up for the winter, but I'm going to ask you about what you think the future holds, even if it's just next year for water. You know, it's no surprise that this is the story we hear, and you even mentioned it earlier, but when I visit out there, I have to say, honestly, I don't see it on the ground yet causing strife. The access to water, amount of water, still not yet causing strife. And there's probably going to be this period where it might get restricted or it might cost more until it's simply not available anymore. Where do you think we are? Uh, where are you guys and what's the mood out there if I'm a golf course superintendent, how should I be talking to my golfers about water management over the next three to five years? That's a great question. I think they should be preaching we need to cut back on water. We need to not water the entire golf course. And I think we've made some strides in general in that. But, you know, 
we talk of restrictions. That kind of happened for the first time this year, although it wasn't really a restriction. It was more of an acknowledgement, finally, from the governor that, hey, we are in a state of drought. But oddly enough, I think agriculture was restricted more in their use than other industries. Homeowners, commercial properties, they could water all they want. There really wasn't any teeth to tell people to stop watering or educate people how to water correctly. So I think the future is going to hit people smack in the face. And, you know, we need to educate people more. Golf course superintendents, I think, are ahead of the curve a little bit, but we can we can still do way better. I think the golf courses in general are overwatered. They get way too much water, and I think we can cut back a lot more. Adam, it's so great to chat with you. Thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Big thanks to Brian Whitlark from the USGA and Adam Van Dyke from the Intermountain West. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The Plant Food Company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.